Hi there, Rachel here. If you're listening to this episode in May of 2024, I have some big news. After selling out during the holiday season, my Flex of Gold journal is available for pre-order right now and will be shipping to your home by the end of June. To celebrate, we're running an amazing pre-order sale for Mother's Day. Purchase the journal before May 13th and you'll get $10 off every journal. This is our best price of the year, even better than Black Friday, so it's the perfect time to stock up for gifts for family and friends. This three-year journal helps mothers to notice, savor, and write down the fleeting golden moments that they experience with their children each day. So go to 3in30podcast.com slash flexofgold to reserve your copy, and you'll also see our brand new cover colors, as well as our new cover option, which is a wipeable vegan leather. So again, go to 3in30podcast.com slash flexofgold to pre-order your journal, and from now until Mother's Day 2024, they'll be marked down by $10 each. I can't wait for you to experience the magic of this beautiful gratitude journal for mothers. You're listening to 3 and 30 Takeaways for Moms, Episode 165, The True Legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and How to Continue It Today. Welcome to 3 and 30, a podcast for moms who want to create more meaning in motherhood. Each 30-minute episode will feature three doable takeaways for you to try at home with your family this week. I'm your host, Rachel Nielsen. Thank you so much for being here. Today is Dr. Martin Luther King Day in the United States, and I'm honored to have the opportunity to dive a bit deeper into his work, particularly as we face such a difficult and contentious time in our country. When you think about Dr. King, what comes to mind? You probably think of his famous I Have a Dream speech, his emphasis on nonviolence, or one of his famous quotes about love, such as, hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. These often highlighted aspects of his work are absolutely an accurate depiction of who he was and what he stood for, but they are an incomplete depiction of who he was and what he fought for, what he gave his life for. As white Americans, we often sugarcoat and whitewash the legacy of Dr. King while remaining ignorant of the true focuses of his work and how it remains largely unfinished today. I am as guilty of this as anyone else, which is why I sought out two experts to be our guests on the podcast today to talk to us about the three major systemic focuses of Dr. King's work and what we as mothers can do to continue his work ourselves, as well as raise children who will be aware of injustice and willing to fight for true equity in our country. Mike and Emily Green are the co-founders of Common Ground Conversations on Race in America, and they will tell us much more about their background and expertise within this work. But before we jump into the episode, I want to acknowledge up front that this episode is going to be dense. There may be terms that you don't recognize, history that you're unfamiliar with, and possibly even facts shared that make you feel uncomfortable or defensive. My challenge for you is just listen. Listen and learn. Take notes of things you don't understand or you want to look up later and learn more about. The best way that we can honor Dr. King today and every day is to learn his history and the history of our country, even the stuff that makes us uncomfortable, and to have the courage to look at current conditions and acknowledge inequalities, particularly for communities of color. It's my greatest hope that this episode will be a springboard for you to learn more and think more deeply, little by little. You don't have to do it all at once to have discussions with your families within your communities and schools and local governments and seek for equitable solutions for all of our children. I also want to thank BetterHelp, our monthly podcast sponsor, for supporting the show and making important conversations like this possible. 
BetterHelp is the world's largest provider of therapy done 100% online. And today, I'd like to read you an email that I got from a 3 and 30 listener who shared her BetterHelp experience with me, and I asked her if she could write it up so that I could share it with all of you. She did, and here's her little testimonial. After moving, I had to find a new therapist, but the wait list for all of the local therapists that my psychiatrist recommended were insanely long. We're talking months to years long. I learned about BetterHelp through the 3 and 30 podcast and signed up, and within a week, I had an appointment with a new therapist. I got lucky and really liked the first person I was paired with, but it's my understanding that you can switch therapists if you find that you're not a great fit. It's so convenient to be able to do therapy on my phone from the comfort of my own home after I get my kids off to school. I also recently discovered that BetterHelp has a large catalog of webinars that are free to members that cover topics from wellness to trauma to grief and more. I attended one of these webinars and was so impressed that I immediately signed up for another one. If you're looking for convenient therapy right from your home, then BetterHelp is a wonderful service that could really benefit your life. I know it has benefited mine. I want to thank that mother for her thorough review, and I want to encourage any of you who may be feeling pulled to give online therapy a try to go to betterhelp.com slash 3 and 30 for 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash 3 and 30. And now here's my conversation with Emily and Mike Green. Get your pen and paper ready. And let's learn together. Here we go. Mike and Emily Green, it is an honor to interview you today. Welcome to 3 and 30. We are just so delighted to be here. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for your time. And this interview is going to air on Dr. Martin Luther King's day, his national holiday. And I really want it to be an interview that will help us to better understand his true legacy, not just the legacy that we think that we understand, but his true legacy And before we begin, I'd like the audience to get a bigger picture on your background and the depth of experience that you've had as you've studied this work and lived this topic of race in America. So can you just tell us a little bit about your family and your professional work and how that's come together for you to create your organization, Common Ground Conversations on Race in America? Absolutely. Rachel, thank you so much. I graduated with an undergraduate degree in social work and spent several years in Southern California providing wraparound strengths-based intensive treatment services to marginalized and vulnerable families before moving up to Southern Oregon. Mike has spent the last decade as a co-founder of a consultancy. So he is a strategist and really an advisor, has been hired by institutions and organizations, policymaking organizations, cities like Jackson, Mississippi, to come in and provide economic strategy. Um, He has just a depth and breadth of knowledge about what's happening in our nation and is hired for that expertise, speaks to state planning groups about economic development. Yes, I'm a cultural economist. Mm. um, I'm known around the country, and I am the chief economic strategist at the National Institute for Inclusive Competitiveness, Mm -hmm. a strategy that we pioneered through our consulting group, Scale Up Partners. And my partner is currently the White House director of the HBCU initiative. Okay. So a couple of years ago, here we are in Southern Oregon, and we are raising our children here and are part of a homeschool group. And they did a presentation on Dr. King. And we found that as we prepared them for that, people were asking, how do we navigate these conversations about race in America? And so we, we created a workshop, how to talk to kids about race in America to that 2019 and, and had the gift of traveling and sharing that with churches and schools and programs around the country. 
So now we are, we are sharing and offering and facilitating common ground conversations on race. And our deep heart's desire is to establish common ground through information and dialogue in order to create empathetic societal change agents. Mm. And I love the emphasis that your work has on history. I took one of your classes online, and then I've read through a lot of your work in preparation for this interview, and it just always goes back to let's look at the history. And one of the main things that you talk about is that white America doesn't really have a true picture of the history, and that's why we need to really study it. What further insights do you have on that? Well, let me offer you this. We were all born into a chapter of U.S. history. And if you open a book in the middle, there's always going to be adventure and intrigue and suspense, lots of things going on, plots and subplots. And in order to understand, to have a really good understanding of what's going on, where you were born in this chapter, you have to go back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. And that's if you open up any book, we always go back to the beginning. And so what we do, because this is not done well in schools. Mm -hmm. What we do is we take people back to a common frame of reference in history. And we we don't go outside the U.S. history. We stay with U.S. history. But that's sufficient because we don't understand that this nation initially was established as a whites-only citizenry. Now, once we understand that, then the question becomes, well, how did the country change? And how is the country changing today? Yes. We inherited a society that we did not have a hand in creating. But Mm -hmm. we do have a role to play in the society that we pass on to future generations. So it's imperative that we understand the society we inherited so that we know our role in actually changing it and reshaping it, redesigning it, and passing it on. Yes. And I do think that it can be a gut instinct, not a good gut instinct to be defensive as white Americans and think that any discussion of social and racial injustice is some sort of a personal attack. And what you said there is so true. This is what we inherited. It's not necessarily our fault that it's what we inherited, but it is our responsibility to do something about it. And like you said, teach our children the true history and and change it for them and for ourselves going into the future. That's right, Rachel. There really is no judgment or shame in what we inherited. The beauty and the capacity is to really understand it. And once we understand it, we can teach it and we can transform it. And that's what we often think about and discuss is that we can't teach what we don't know. So especially as a mama, my heart is to really be equipped to teach my children well and to empower them with truth so that they can make the changes. Yes. Yes, We're still having the same conversation that we've Mm -hmm. been having in this country since its beginning. Mm -hmm. So at at the beginning, everyone did not agree that there should be ownership of people, slaves, in this country. The Quakers did not believe in that. Abolitionists did not believe in that. But they didn't have the power to change it. But they had the power of dissent. They had the power to raise their voices. And the states did not even agree. So every state that joined the union had to define itself by whether or not it was going to enslave people or 
allow people to be free. So that was the defining notion of the defining character of every state that joined the union. And by the way, our 13 colonies, the majority of them were slave states when we first started. Mm-hmm. So we, we get all the way up to the Civil War in 1861. And guess what the conversation is? It's still about free or, or slave states. Mm-hmm. And after the Civil War, you have 4 million freed slaves. Now, what's the question? The question is, what are we going to do with all these black people? This is the exact same question that they had before the Civil War. What are we going to do with black people? Now, what are we going to do with free black people? And the answer was, in Congress, uh, the white radicals, as they were known, they said, we're going to empower them, both politically and economically, and they're going to be citizens of the United States, which they weren't before. Well, that required changing the Constitution three times, 13th Amendment, 14th Amendment, 15th Amendment. It required impeaching a white supremacist president. It required a Civil Rights Act, 1866, of which there have been eight since. It required creating the Freedmen's Bureau and Freedmen's Bank and funding that. In other words, the federal government had to prioritize the political and economic empowerment of Black people to change this country. Mm-hmm. And it only took them seven years to do all of that. And, and and then what happened? And then in 1872, you had the Amnesty Act that allowed the white supremacists back into Congress. When we think of white supremacy today, we think of people who are low on the education totem pole. We think of uh, poor, dis- disaffected white people. But that's not, that's just one spectrum of white supremacy. Well, when, in 1872, when the white supremacists came back, the very first thing they did was end the funding of the Freedmen's Bureau. In other words, the economic empowerment of Black people only lasted for a few years. They uh, ransacked the Freedmen's Bank. Uh, Frederick Douglass, a name everyone will recognize, was president of the Freedmen's Bank. Mm-hmm. And they began to undo all of the political and economic empowerment of Black people that was done in those seven years. 1896, the Supreme Court fully and officially recognized two societies, two Americas, one white, wealthy, and powerful, one black, poor, and powerless. Mm -hmm. And that leads really well into our discussion of Dr. King and his work. So how is his work founded in the history and where are we with it now? And I do want to talk about the three major focuses of his work. A lot of us naively think it's come to pass, you know, like his dream has come to pass and the things he fought for has come to pass. And that is simply not true. Well, we have to understand what led to Dr. King. And what led to Dr. King was the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education ruling by the Supreme Court that said you must desegregate the schools with all deliberate speed. What we do not learn is that uh, that same Supreme Court in 1958 also passed the pupil placement law which Mm -hmm. was coming out of Alabama, to nullify the desegregation of schools. So the 50s were moving toward 1960. And it was really a a point in time where, A, it was a very peaceful movement of Black people that were rising up, these Black voices that were rising up, in a nonviolent direct action protest Mm -hmm. that was orchestrated. And they made sure it was based upon nonviolence. Now, they were still hoping that the 1954 decision would come to pass. But by 1960, it had not. It was the 100-year anniversary, the centennial of the the Emancipation Proclamation at the beginning of 1963 that really 
became the trigger mechanism for an uprising of what Dr. King described as the Negro Revolution, a nonviolent direct action protest in nearly 1,000 cities. Mm-hmm. And it was the federal government that said this was the most important movement in U.S. history. It even compared it to the American Revolution itself and said there has been no other movement more important than the Negro American Revolution. And it must be brought to a successful conclusion for America to realize her own highest achievements that are written in the Bill of Rights. So therefore, when Dr. King in 1963 came to the Washington Mall and he talked about his dream, he didn't start with his dream. That's what that's the end crescendo. In fact, he hadn't even written about his dream. It was Mahalia Jackson who was there who said, tell him about your dream, Martin. <laughs> but Was that extemporaneous? It, yes, it was. Oh, my word. It is so beautifully. I mean, I, I thought he must have memorized this. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that he, he came up with it on the spot. On the spot. Wow. But he, but he started with his reality. Yes. His first refrain is 100 years later, the Negro is still not free. 100 years later, the Negro is still crippled by the uh, segregation and and the chains of discrimination. And he went on several refrains, 100 years later, 100 years later, the Negro still lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. And then he says, and so we come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. That shameful condition is measured in the education and quality of education of our schools, in housing discrimination, and in banking discrimination. And with all of that historical context, where are we today with those three issues that were the key focus of the Negro Revolution, education, housing, and banking? Can you go through each one of those and give us a little bit of background on where we are today and what needs to happen and change for true equality? Sure. You start with education, because, of course, if we're born into generational wealth, then we're going to have good schools. We're going to live in good, safe communities. But if we're born in generational poverty, then we're going to be served by the absolute worst quality schools that the richest nation in the world can afford. That has been the case for the 155 years coming out of uh, the Civil War for Mm -hmm. Black people. Mm -hmm. The funding of schools, which is funded by state and mostly state and local taxes. Uh, and, and my wife and I just uh, looked up the latest funding, which is $736 billion for schools. And the states put in $346 billion, And the local governments put in $330 billion, And the federal government only puts in about $60 billion. Well, mm-hmm. if we remember our history, it was the federal government that provided the political and economic empowerment of Black people. It was the states that opposed it. It was the citizens' councils that came up with the pupil placement law to nullify the Supreme Court decision in 1954. So the local and state decision makers nullified the federal decision. That is correct. We're talking about kids. Mm -hmm. So if you're a mother, you know how much you want your kid to succeed. You know how much you want the best for your child. And yet... There are people making decisions at the state and local level who know that ubiquitously we are providing the absolute worst foundation for the most vulnerable and needy children in our country. And I mean, one might argue that legal segregation ended 
with the Brown versus the Board of Education, but then what many people don't realize is this pupil placement law. So tell us more about that. What what was that and how did it nullify Brown versus the Board of Education? So when we say legal segregation ended, we had a ruling by the mm-hmm. Supreme Court. We interpreted it as legal segregation is ended, but it did not. The same Supreme Court upheld the pupil placement law, which said that even though on a federal level, the, the Supreme Court wants every state and every locality to end segregation in their schools and do whatever it can to do that, it then gave them the power to do it however they wanted, whenever they wanted. Mm. So yeah. then they took that power, that's the pupil placement law, and they said, what we'll do is we'll, we'll test these poor black kids and see which ones have any capabilities. And then we will select those that have capabilities. And some of them can go to white schools. Some of them can go to specialized schools that we'll set up. But the vast majority of these kids will remain in squalor. They will remain in poor quality schools. And they will continue the cycle of generational poverty. And that's where we are today. And then, of course, with the growth of the Hispanic population, they have been lumped in with the black kids. And so the vast majority of black and Hispanic kids all go to some of the worst schools in our country. And why is that? I mean, there's no longer a testing and things like that. And so why is it that they're still going to the worst schools? Because we have segregated communities. And I think I wanted to add here, Rachel, that this was one of the most helpful connections for me to make. And that is that the communities where people of color could live, that was determined by white America, by specific policies and practices so that we understand some of this is redlining. So there were communities that were designated. This is the only place, you know, in Portland, Oregon, it's called Albina. There's this small little district. And if you're a person of color and you want to purchase a home, you will only live in this box. And so that was created. This is, this is not very far history. And once those communities are created, then we understand the mechanism of school funding and the funding mm-hmm. system is set up so that those communities then fund their schools. Mm-hmm. And so this sort of flows into what we see in the schools exactly. in those communities. So if you have a local tax base and you have low taxes in specific communities that are used to fund those schools, then you have obviously less money. So the, the funding mechanism itself was based upon segregation as policies and practices. So then we get into housing. <laughs> yes, and that does lead right into housing. But before we go there, I wanted to clarify. So local schools are funded by local property tax, right? Yes. And why is that? Because that does create this big disparity. And are you saying that it should be more funded by the federal government instead of by local government so that it would be more equitable across all communities? I'm saying that if you're funding schools by state and local taxes, and we know the history of funding schools by state and local taxes that is uh, steeped in systemic racism, then the federal government has a role. It has an opportunity. And if we have $736 billion in, in total funding and the federal government is only putting in 60 well, the federal mm-hmm. government found $2 trillion in the couch cushions when it needed it uh, last year. So <laughs> the federal government could put more money into schools and prioritize black and brown communities because that's where our most vulnerable kids are in need of the highest 
quality schools that we can provide. And as we look at the most vulnerable population, as we look at these children, I am always struck, Rachel, by the realization that these children represent potential and future educators and attorneys and doctors and scientists and creators. And I think our country as a whole, think of the incredible benefit of really cultivating talent, not just because it's, you know, perhaps I would say the right thing to do to provide equal access and and access to education, but also because we are missing out as a nation on so much beauty and gifting and passion and purpose because there literally is not mechanisms in place to support and cultivate that growth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was struck by that when I read through your outline about the data that you have that shows how much better we would be doing economically as a nation if we were really empowering all of our citizens. It's This isn't just the right thing to do. It's also the smart thing to do for our country in so many different ways. Well, Citigroup came out with a report last year that said we're missing out on $16 trillion because of the racist systemic policies that we continue to foster in this country instead of disrupting the status quo and redesigning and reforming and reconstructing a more equitable and inclusive America that benefits all in a multicultural society. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And let's talk more about the housing. So that was another thing that Dr. King fought for. And, And I think the key word there is fought for. You know, we often, white America paints him as this man who was all about only love and peace, which he was, but he was fighting actively. As you say, he was a warrior fighting for these causes. He was. He was a nonviolent warrior fighting against segregationist policies and practices that protected white supremacy. And he defined mm-hmm. himself as that. And he called his, his volunteers an army of volunteers. And he had the capital R on revolution. And he gave speeches about this nonviolent revolution that must rise up to change the status quo. This is our Dr. King that we know. Mm-hmm. And, the, yes. and all of this was born out of the Christian church. That's right. And all of this was opposed by the Christian church. And it mm-hmm. still is. So we're talking about black and white, poor and wealthy, and how we can live together in a country that benefits everyone. The housing is a big part of it. Because housing leads to generational wealth. It's the very first step, the biggest asset when we start to talk about ownership of assets, lands, homes, and businesses. And so housing is key. But how do we get to that point where we're owning homes? Well, today, 44% of Black Americans own homes. And these are pre-pandemic numbers. Well, that's what it was back in the 60s. Mm. And so... Today, 76% of white people own their homes. Well, how can we increase the number of black people that own their homes if we are intentional about black children growing up in homes that their families own? Where's the strategy for that? Or do we even care? Yeah. And, And is there an answer? I mean, what is the strategy for that? Well, there is no strategy, and that's the reason why we created the National Institute for Inclusive Competitiveness to work with historically black colleges and universities that have a long legacy, a hundred-plus-year-old legacy of cultivating the talent among the most vulnerable populations. It is imperative that we extend these economic strategies to prioritize the productivity in black and brown communities, because 
in the next 20 years, that's going to be the majority of our population. And they currently produce collectively less than 4% GDP. And we have the highest GDP in the world at 21 trillion. We're the world's wealthiest nation. And the majority of our minority groups are producing less than 4% of that with virtually no job growth. And it's not for lack of trying. Their entrepreneurship activity is off the charts. Their productivity is flat and negative because they don't have access to the capital. That brings us to banking. They don't have the infrastructure needed in order to be exposed to the growth sectors of our economy, to be mentored in the ways that they need to be. So we have to, we have to start to think seriously about how we're going to take what we inherited from the 20th century, is these segregationist policies and practices that are writ large across the nation, ubiquitously disserving our communities of color and how we're going to redesign them and how we're going to reform them and how we're going to reconstruct our communities so that there is infrastructure, so that there are pathways to prosperity for communities of color and the kids that are born in those. But we have to be intentional about that. It doesn't happen by magic. And oh, by the way, those beneficiaries of the status quo, they're going to fight to sustain it, to mm-hmm. maintain it. Yeah. And I think I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can feel it within ourselves. If you have a urge of defensiveness or, you know, I don't want things to change because things are working for me, <laughs> you know, like that is the worst in us. And yet I think we all have that that instinct of what does this mean for me? And it, we have to be bigger than that. And how does this all play into the banking and the financial piece that Dr. King was fighting for? Well, certainly when we talk about banking and access to capital, Dr. King's wife, Coretta Scott King, is on record that saying that she fully believes that her husband, had he stayed on uh, focus with social justice ideology and social justice speeches, had he stayed there, he would still be alive today. But when he incorporated economics into his focus, he didn't last very long at all. Mm. And so when we talk about changing the economy of this country, we're talking about changing the identity of this country. And if it's going to be a multicultural country, then the opportunities to access capital have to be extended to people of color, particularly people of color who have been marginalized and ostracized and denied access for generations going all the way back to the Freedmen's Bank when that was destroyed. And from that point all the way to this point, the banking industry has had a disproportionate relationship with people of color than it has with the white community. In the last 10 years, the banks have been fined $243 billion for discriminating against black people. Now, that being said, they paid the fines and they continue to discriminate. And they know this. It's the banks themselves that are producing these reports. That gives us hope, though, because as generations change, minds change, attitudes change, and people come in and they're not willing to maintain the status quo. They're starting to ask questions. Why are our policies different for these people over here than they are for those people over there, even with the same credit scores? So the challenge of changing the banks is something that is not going to happen overnight, but but it can happen. It, it can, can happen, happen with people within the system that are 
that are stepping into change. If they are educated. In That's the right. same way that I, I help educate economic development planners who are inheriting policies that are still built on segregation. In the same way that I, I talk to school districts who are inheriting education policies and, by the way, curriculum, history, mm-hmm. civics, economics, social studies. These are all textbooks that are steeped in white supremacy. And so the ideology that we, we, we incorporate in our schools and we teach to our children. So when we see this white supremacist mindset, it's because it's being taught. And we need to find ways to, to disrupt it. And the way we do that is through education and through conversations like this. Yeah. I know when I emailed, when you emailed back and forth a little bit, I said, what can be done? What can we do? And you said, start learning. That's what we all need to do is we need to start learning. This This can feel very overwhelming, all of this information. And it's tempting to just say it's too complicated. It's all interwoven. It's generations of history. And what can I do? And so what is the first step for moms who are listening? So the first step absolutely is learning and listening. And I love this because it's very simple and it's also challenging, but really, truly a posture of being curious and listening is the most incredible first step. And it really is sort of a pivot away from what we're accustomed to toward looking and listening really well to the voices of those who really are crying out to be heard and also listening and learning well and studying what exists right around us. And Mm -hmm. I think that even as that feels overwhelming, the truth is that as we learn, a next right step really does open up before us. And I I see this happen so often. I see this happen in relationships around me. I saw this happen last evening. I'm on a Zoom call with a local women's ministry book club, reading a book, Color of Compromise. And one of the women says, all of a sudden this summer, I have this awakening with the murder of George Floyd. And I don't know much, but I'm learning. And here's what I'm doing. I'm joining this local school board. And I'm going to have this to say. I'm going to have this to ask. She is a learner. We're all learners. We've not arrived. But as a learner, she's stepping into her local space, her community, her school board. And she's going to have voice. She's going to ask questions. Mm -hmm. Well, I would recommend also that if you're a white woman and you have children, if you live in a neighborhood where most of the people around you are white, you go to a church where most of the people around you are white, you send your kids to schools where most of the people are white, where your circles of influence and engagement and exposure, you're just exposed to more of the same bubble. My suggestion is that you get out of that bubble. You go to other places, other churches, that are not white. You begin to join groups that have people of color in those groups. You actually go to places in town that, uh, that you've never gone to before. And you start to begin to expose yourself to mm-hmm. the places outside of the bubble. And, and instead of talking about Dr. King, mm-hmm. why don't we listen to the words of Dr. King by reading the books that Dr. King actually mm-hmm. wrote and read those books, not to just ourselves, but actually read those books to our kids and begin to have discussion groups around the things that Dr. King wrote. Because Dr. King wrote about the Negro American Revolution. The federal government wrote about the Negro American Revolution. And yet, the vast majority of white people don't know anything about the Negro American Revolution. And I think, Rachel, you said a good thing. We often, as humans, we bring defensiveness to things. Mm-hmm. So, as Mike said, let's 
explore and expose yourself to new places. But as you do, boy, if we can just be intentional about letting go of some of that defensiveness so that we can listen and be curious, learn new things that are going to kind of shake up our paradigm, but that's okay because that's good. And so we listen while we form these relationships and we we step into the discomfort. Yes. And I love this emphasis on expanding outside of what's familiar and what's comfortable and learning and reading and embracing other people's stories and asking questions. That's where this all begins. And I think we need more women in government. I, th- I think we need more women who are educating themselves in all of these issues. And where would you recommend that women start? As we wrap up this interview, I'd love for you to give them a resource you would love for them to start with. Given the fact that we are coming up on Dr. Martin Luther King Day mm-hmm. and then going right into Black History Month, my recommendation is this, that every person hearing the sound of my voice Get Dr. King's book, Why We Can't Wait, and read that book. Let that be a starting point. Read that book and then discuss it. Not just read it and and walk away from it, but actually read it and discuss it. Start a a reading group or a reading circle, but have discussions about what those issues are in that book because what Dr. King describes in that book is exactly what we're living through today. Mm -hmm. I read this book in preparation for the interview and I loved it and I found it inspirational and also convicting. It made me think deeply about how I'm participating and not participating in things that matter. And I completely agree that this is a book. I, I read it and underlined it, but now you're right. I need to take that and discuss it with somebody, make it really part of me by discussing it with other women who I care about and other people that I care about generally. And I just can't thank you both enough for your time and energy that you've put into educating us in the three and 30 community. And thank you so much for the work that you're doing for the world. Rachel, thank you so very much for this time together. Yeah, Thank you, Rachel. You're doing great work as well. We appreciate it. Well, friends, I hope you learned as much from this conversation as I did. It is fascinating to dig into the history of our country and learn more about how our systems today are still deeply impacted by 20th century segregationism. When we honor Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., it's important to remember that he fought to end segregation and discrimination in three major areas, education, housing, and banking. These three areas are very connected to each other, and unfortunately, research shows a huge disparity between white America and black America continues to exist in all three of these areas today. As Mike said in the interview, we inherited a society that we did not have a hand in creating, but we do have a role to play in the society that we pass on to future generations. Dr. King's work is far from over, and we as mothers can take the first step towards helping his work continue by listening and learning, reading and researching, and also getting outside our bubble to get to know people of color and to get involved in our local communities. As Emily said towards the end of the interview, even though this learning can feel overwhelming, the truth is that as we learn, a next right step really does open up for us. Start with the learning and your action steps will become clearer. I want to remind you of Mike and Emily's organization, Common Ground Conversations on Race in America, which I will link in the show notes. I'll keep you updated when they offer the next session of their 10-week facilitated online course this spring. And in the meantime, please take Mike's challenge to read Dr. King's book, Why We Can't Wait, with a group of people you trust and discuss it together. 
As I mentioned, I read this book in preparation for this interview, and going into it, I thought it would be really heavy, dense, and long, but I found that I couldn't put it down. It was so inspirational. Dr. King tells the story of the movement in Birmingham, Alabama in the summer of 1963 that began with meticulously organized and bravely executed lunch counter sit-ins. I loved getting to know him and his work more intimately through his first-person account. I'll link the book in the show notes from a small black-owned bookstore. My friends, thank you for being here and for caring about creating a better world for our children, for all children. I appreciate you and all the work you do within your homes and communities, and I hope you have a beautiful week with your family.